Hey everyone, this is Nick with Blink Finance, and I hope you're having a good Sunday so far. The point of this conversation or podcast is to go through some of the most important financial news that we've gotten throughout the week, <clears throat> give you guys some of my perspectives on what's happening, and really do a deep dive analysis on where the economy's heading and really what's going on, because I, I think at the end of the day, money is a topic of conversation which makes a lot of people uncomfortable and i think where a lot of that begins is when people don't understand their finances having these kind of conversations is not really enjoyable or something that they want to do but i and i don't really think finance should be a <clears throat> something that's intimidating it should be something that you should understand more fully you don't need to be you know the next warren buffett or you know, guru guy who's going to have all the solutions or answers and know how option strategies work. I just think having a baseline understanding is definitely something good. So you can position position yourself and your family in a better place than if you were not. So we're going to start off with, <clears throat> pardon me, I guess I got some COVID. Uh, we're going to start off with a article from CNBC. And the title is U.S. GDP fell at 1.4% pace to start the year as the pandemic recovery takes a hit. So going into some of the points that they had here, <clears throat> it declined by 1.4% in the first quarter. And this was actually going against the expectations analysts and Wall Street had of a 1% gain. Uh, in short, the GDP is a measure of how fast the economy is growing. And when you have two negative quarters of GDP growth. So let's say, for example, uh, Q2 or Q3 has a negative GDP report in the next three months, and then we would be considered in a technical sense a recession. So something to look out for there. <clears throat> and what else, is, what else do we have in the article? So declines in fixed investment, defense spending, and the record trade imbalance weighed on growth. That makes sense. Consumer expenditures rose 2.7%, and that came amid a 7.8% increase in prices. So definitely something to note there as well. <clears throat> as I'm sure many of you have noticed, inflation has gone uh, in, uh, completely out of control. I mean, prices for milk, eggs, meat, gasoline have just gone off the wall. And, and I suppose uh, at a later part of this conversation, I'll do a little bit more of a deep dive into that, but definitely something to pay attention to. So let's see what else is going on here. Uh, despite the disappointing number, markets paid little attention to the report. Well, this was clearly written before Friday because the NASDAQ got hammered. Oh, my God. Um, you know, rising COVID infections start the year with hampered activity across the board, while inflation is surging at a level not seen since the early 1980s, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine also contributed to the economic stasis. Agreed. <clears throat> And then what else do they have here? Prices increasing sharply during the quarter with the GDP price index deflator rising 8%, following a 7.1 jump, 7.1 jump in quarter four of 2021. And some other points that they bring up here is that deceleration in the private inventory investment weighed on growth after propelling GDP in the back half of 2021. Other restraints came in the form of exports and governments spending across state, federal, and local governments, as well as rising imports. And then an 8.5% pullback in defense spending was a particular drag, knocking one-third of the percentage point off the final GDP re reading. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I think to kind of wrap up what these guys are talking about with a nice bow, it's really a conversation of how, you know, we locked down the economy. We turned off the spending. Uh, we, you know, let people stay inside their houses for 
months on end. The Federal Reserve came in and injected a whole bunch of liquidity into the market. Stimulus checks were awash, and now we're starting to see some of the negative implications about that. You can't debase a currency and expect inflation not to rise. And I think what my personal concern is regarding this negative GDP growth is that it's kind of, in a sense, being... How should I best put this? The readings are what the readings are, but I don't think they're necessarily accurate. When you have inflation as high as it is, you can run into a scenario where corporate profits, at least on a nominal sense, look a lot better than they actually are if you were going to adjust them for the real value value of the currency. I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say I have a taco stand and I sold $100 worth of tacos in quarter one, and then the price of everything rose by 10%. So that next quarter, I sold the same amount of tacos, but I made $110. But in actuality, your, your growth hasn't actually improved. It's just you had to charge more given that everything in the economy is costing more. So, you know, what I, I think this will be indicative of is something called stagflation, where there's stagnant growth and high levels of inflation. And unless the Federal Reserve can, in short, increase rates faster than they would ideally would like to, you know, we're, we're going to see something like that moving forward. So going into our next article, this is actually related to what we were just speaking about from NBC News. Is a recession on the way and what data says about the economy? So sky-high inflation, rising interest rates, falling home prices. Analysts are working to digest a host of signals about the U.S. economy, which emerged from a pandemic recession stronger than anyone could have believed. This week, those alarming trends collided with another major point showing U.S. gross domestic product shrank. We just talked about that. Still, economists believe a formal recession, the two consecutive quarters that we had spoken about, is not imminent. I would disagree, but we'll see what they say. Uh, Ian Shepardson, chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics Research Group, said this is noise, not a signal. The economy is not falling into a recession. And then actually from, they have a tweet here. Don't freak out. The U.S. was not in a recession at the beginning of this year. Core components of real GDP, consumer spending, and fixed investments are much better today than what the headlines are producing. You're not going to see payrolls jumping. Payrolls as in um, corporations release data about their payrolls. And this is talking about how many people are actually into, into the labor market. So... Let's see. Many Americans are still feeling jittery among the signs. Searches for recession have been spiking up in Google this month. That's actually really fascinating. So it looks like there are two axes here. The X axis is time. The Y axis is, I believe, a percentage. But it looks like just in the past month uh, or since January, it was at about 25 percent. And then up until recent times, it went up to around 80 percent of increased trend. So that's something like that. So what else do they have going on in the article? There are undoubtedly a lot of challenges for the U.S. economy, said James Knightley, a chief international economist at the Financial Servicing Group, ING. You have a situation where households are feeling the squeeze of higher fuel and food costs and wages that are not necessarily keeping pace. Yeah, fun fact about that. If your employer didn't give you a 10% pay raise this year or last year, you basically decided to keep working for less money. So good for you. (laughs) Um, Okay. And then as a result, while most economists are certain that growth will begin to slow in the coming months, there is debate about how severe the drop will be and what that means for average Americans. In short, people are feeling cautious, starting to see higher rates, and it makes people a little bit nervous. Um, Yeah, definitely a little bit. I want to talk about the housing market and the implications this is going to have. But, you know, we're seeing some 
pretty negative signs in the economy. Um, some of the other points that they bring up are the higher inflation, the Federal Reserve indicating that the yield curve has inverted. That is a conversation that could probably go on for three or four hours. Perhaps another day I can do an episode on there. And then, you know, there's there's some charts that they have in this article about where inflation is and where it's going. And I think <clears throat> the short end of the story is that inflation is much higher than the economy can really withstand to the point where it's actually going to slow down or even destroy people's ability and willingness to, you know, purchase goods and services. And if that continues for a long enough time, another negative GDP growth rating is going to get us into a recession. And once we're in a recession, it's not necessarily like the, you know, the writing's on the wall and the economy's going to fall apart, but people's behavior and consumer psychology is going to change accordingly. So definitely something to know on that. Now we're going back to CNBC, and let's actually talk about inflation a little bit with this next article. The Fed's favorite inflation gauge rode four, or two, 5.2% in March as worker pay fell further behind. Uh, some key points here, personal consumption expenditure, excluding food and energy, which is outrageous because you, know, you really shouldn't. Those are two things that people always buy constantly whatever. Uh, the Fed's preferred inflation gauge rose 5.2% in March from a year ago. There's a slight deceleration from February in the Wall Street estimate, and then employer costs accelerated 1.4% in the past quarter, while inflation-adjusted income declined 0.4% in March. Including food and energy, the core PCE surged 6.6%, the fastest pace since 1982. <clears throat> and, you know, I think like what we were talking about before, you go to the grocery store nowadays and, you know, I don't know if you guys remember, but when I was a little kid, you can go get these gallon jugs of the Arizona iced tea and the green tea for a dollar. And now you go to the store and some places are charging five or six. The you know, eggs are a couple bucks right now. And I remember when I was like eight or nine years old, you can get a dozen eggs for a dollar. And these prices are going across the economy and it's in, in some respect a situation that's out of control. And now, I guess we can talk for a moment. How does the Federal Reserve and how, how do economists try to curb the rate of inflation? Well, the last time we had inflation this high was during Paul Volcker, and that was in the 1970s and 1980s. Inflation, the 10-year Treasury yield, which is one indicator that you can use to see how the Federal Reserve is reacting to these things, got increased to a 14.5%. I could pull up the chart, but it was something outrageous like that. Whereas compared to today, I mean, the 10-year Treasury's yielding maybe 2.9%. So there's still a long way for interest rates to go up. And how, how does the Federal Reserve actually do that? <clears throat> well, they have two tools. They have the ability to inject liquidity into the market, known as quantitative easing, or to pull out liquidity in the market, known as quantitative tightening. And when I say liquidity, I mean fixed income security. So mortgage-backed securities, which is a bunch of mortgages packaged up, which you can buy and sell kind of like a bond. Or a bond, which is a simply a debt from a government or a corporation that pays you interest, coupon payments specifically on a monthly basis. And what the Federal Reserve does is buys those assets to artificially lower interest rates when the economy goes through hard times. And one of the things that they can do to reverse that trend and increase interest rates again is either begin selling those securities, letting them roll off or mature, meaning when the bond finishes paying off its coupons, they're not going to buy a new bond of the same value, or they can raise what's known as the Federal Reserve funds rate. And that's the rate in which banks are going to lend to each other. So little conversation on inflation. We got to see how the Federal Reserve is going to react to all this. But let's read a little bit more in the article. 
So the core personal consumption expenditures price index, which measures the cost that consumers pay across a wide swath of items and accounts for how behavior changes in response to market dynamic, increased 5.2% from a year ago, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis. However, that was slightly below the 5.3 reading in February, which was the highest in April of 1983. Uh, let's see. Including food and energy, PC inc- increased 6.6. We got to talk about that earlier. What else is happening here? Yeah, so basically, in short, I think this here at the bottom is really important. Real disposable personal income or the amount of income after taxes and adjusted for inflation declined 0.4% in March and after increasing 0.1% in February. Real spending rose 0.2% while the headline personal income accelerated 0.5%. In short, faced with rising costs and failing income, or falling income, Americans dipped into their savings. Their personal savings rate, or the amount put aside as a share of after-tax income, declined to 6.2% from 6.8% in February. And this notion that we should even be saving in an economy such as this is outrageous to me. You'll deposit your money in, you know, let's say a Chase Bank or a Citibank or BNP Paribas or, you know, even a regional bank like M&T or PNC, and you'll be getting maybe... 0.1% 0.1% interest per year, if you're lucky. You go to these super risky uh, fintech companies, and I wouldn't say super risky, but there's definitely a little bit more risk uh, for those firms, like Chime or Simple used to be one that existed in the early 2010s. Super good service, but then it just got shut off. One day they said, we're no longer doing this, got to close your account, move your money somewhere else. But even there, you're going to get 50 basis points, maybe, or a half a percent interest per year. And sure, like that's fine and dandy and all, but when inflation's running at, at least here, PCE at 6.6%, and your savings rate is going to be substantially less than that, in effect, your your real income on an annualized basis is negative because what you're getting from putting your money into a savings account is going to be less than the de- declination of your the value of the dollar. So, you know, it's definitely not really an encouraging sign for savers in America. And that's why I think we're seeing so many people just invest in the stock market, where <clears throat> even if it's in a declining market, given that the stock market's returned 7 to 10% per year since 1917, recessions, uh, economic crisis, war, and inflation aside, it, it makes a much more compelling case. So let's move into some global financial news here. Russia's war in Ukraine is straining the global economic cooperation. This is fascinating. All right, so Indonesia's invitation of Vladimir Putin to Bali, meeting a group of 20 in November, is the latest point in tension. So let's see here. The rift between Western democracies and Russia and China is forcing policymakers to figure out how to keep conversations alive among nations with diverse views as they face economic challenges arising from the war in Ukraine. Indonesia's announcement on Friday has invited the leaders of Russia and Ukraine to a meeting of the group's 20 economic powers underscore the complex task facing the U.S. and its Western allies. They must not only confront Russia, but must also work along with nations caught in the middle. So, you know, this is definitely another conversation to have as well. How does the role of Russia and Ukraine play into where the economy is going? Well, definitely a few points there to notice. Firstly, Europe is heavily dependent upon Russian oil, and the more this conflict 
increases in escalation, and if it continues for a longer period of time, the, the more unjustifiable, at least politically speaking, it'll be for European nations to continue to buy Russian oil. What is that going to do? It's going to increase the cost of actually getting fuel because there's less supply in those nations. So that's definitely something that could slow down the European economy. And then moreover, something that I think is concerning is that area produces so much of the bread, so much of the wheat for our planet. And if it continues at this pace where you know, supply chains get impacted, uh, agrable land gets impacted as well, you can see an increase for the price of wheat. So something to note there. Now, talking about the global economy, this is coming from the Hill, a hard landing for the global economy from a man named Desmond Latchman. Interesting. So let's read here. As the world's major central banks begun begin to, hawk, to adopt hawkish monetary policy stances, there's some good and bad news about the world economic outlook. The good news is that the world economy does not appear to be suffering from the same vulnerabilities that made the 2008 and 2009 Great Recession so severe. The bad news is that the world now suffers from a different set of vulnerabilities. These vulnerabilities make it likely that a forthcoming global economic recession will be more severe than the average post-war economic recession, albeit not as bad as 2008. So, yeah, as you guys know, in 2008, there were a number of games that they were playing in the mortgage market, uh, specifically ninja loans and subprime lending, which once you package those into mortgage-backed securities, you got, you got to watch the big short if you haven't already. But basically, the entire housing market blew up because people were getting houses that they could not afford. Banks were leveraged to the max. And then, like a house of cards, it all fell apart. So, you know, obviously, there was bank regulation that had occurred afterwards to try to reduce the tendency for banks to give out riskier credit. But, you know, uh, like, again, these, these conversations can go on for hours. I could talk about 2008 for years. But let's read some of the points that they have in this article. So, to be sure, the world's banking system is better prepared than it was in 2008 to handle sharp declines in asset and credit market prices. But at the same time, it may not be about the unregulated and high-levered non-bank part of the financial system, which could lead to the long-term capital market bubble in 1988. So this is after Paul Volcker raised the interest rate, and then the market crashed in 88. That has something a little bit to do with algorithmic trading. That's when computers started to become <clears throat> used for the execution of trades. But that's also a whole different story in its own right. But another reason to be concerned about today's world economic outlook is China's challenging economic position. Their property and credit-led growth model is now showing every sign that it's running out of steam, and the country's no-tolerance COVID strategy is leading to a sharp economic slowdown, which will aggravate its property sector problems. This makes it highly probable that China will once again be able to play the role of the world's economic growth locomotive as it did during the 2008-2009 Great Recession and to soften the blow of a synchronized economic recession in the rest of the world. So basically what these guys are saying is <clears throat> central banks across the world need to increase rates. When rates get increased, that's going to slow down growth. Why? Because businesses, consumers, etc., the cost to borrow, given that the world's on a debt-based system, is going to increase, meaning it's going to reduce demand and economic outlook. And then moreover, given the situation with China and COVID, and especially with the property market, which just got cracked down very hard uh, with the fall of Evergrande, or at least potential default of Evergrande, you know, you're going to see some negative impacts. And 
basically we're playing a there's a two-team game right now there's a u.s and china europe's there but they've been in a recession forever japan has been in stagflation forever you know emerging markets they're doing what they do but the two major players are are the u.s and china U.S. has to raise rates. We have negative GDP. China is locking down their economy. Their property sector has some serious issues that they need to deal with. And if one of those dominoes fall because of how interconnected the global financial system is, this is going to have negative ramifications for the long term of the global economy. So definitely be on the lookout. Uh, Note that China is a really important factor in this conversation and it's definitely something to pay attention to and speaking of the federal reserve how about we read a little bit from bloomberg about these rate hikes so on may 4th get a beer because jerome powell is going to be raising rates by 50 basis points and yeah i know that doesn't really seem like a lot but markets are not having it but coming up from bloomberg powell seen slowing rate hikes after may and june front loading Economists forecast two half-point moves and smaller steps. No appetite for a 75 basis point increase. Survey shows I call nonsense, but we'll have to see. Uh, why do I call nonsense? Because inflation's out of control. People cannot afford these prices. And a 75 basis point hike would definitely be a step in the right direction to slowing down the rate of inflation. But going on to the article here... <clears throat> Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell is likely to slow the pace of interest rate increases after front-loading policy with half-point hikes next week and in June, economists surveyed by Bloomberg say. They expect the FOMC to raise its benchmark rate by 50 basis point at the May 3rd and 4th meeting and do so again in June, the first hikes of that size since 2000, and then a downshift to a series of quarter-point moves during the second half of the year. The U.S. Central Bank will also start to shrink its $9 trillion balance sheet in May. Big point there to notice as well. We were talking about, you know, the federal, uh, the Fed's two tools, quantitative easing slash tightening and interest rates. At the start of the pandemic, the balance sheet was around $6 trillion. That means we've debased our currency, rough estimate here, by about 30%. And then you think that letting that roll off isn't going to have negative impacts in the economy. I think people are crazy. But that's just my perspective. So, let's see. The survey of 48 economists conducted from April 22nd to the 27th forecast that the Fed will lift rates to a target range of 2.25 to 2.5 by December, while markets are pricing in around 2.75 by the year end. The last published forecast rate in March showed that rates were at 1.9% this year and 2.8% in 2023. The economy see. The economists see Fed rates peaking at 2.88 in December of 2023. So in short, they want to increase interest rates. And like we were talking about before, this is definitely going to slow down the economy. And speaking about slowdowns, let's talk about housing. Coming in from Fox News, housing industry getting hit by perfect storm, billionaire real estate developer warns. So let's see what he says here. Real estate developer Jay Bloom warns customers on Thursday that the housing industry is getting hit by the perfect storm. Quote, we are in the middle of a real estate boom like we had not seen in the past. Quote, he had said several factors impacting home building in the red hot housing market from supply chain interruptions. I'm sure you guys have seen about that. Trying to get lumber nowadays is crazy. To low interest rates and a foreclosure moratorium during the pandemic basically increase the price of getting a house. When there's low supply, constant demand, and lower interest rates, people are willing to bid more for their houses. But 
this is going to occur, what, what's going to occur is at some point there's going to be an inventory buildup, and this is what he's talking about. And then once there will be, so he said, once the perfect storm hits, the artificial shortage in the housing market inventory will quote unquote go away, and the result will be new home starts, which will start to put pressure down on pricing. Notes that supply chain interruptions along with labor shortages are calling home builder confidence to drop since it's difficult to find materials and get workers to work on these properties. So in short, we're seeing some crazy action in the housing market right now. My suggestion would be certainly not to buy a property at this time. Yeah, the rates are going to be, well, one higher, but the transient price of a house right now is still extremely high. Um, hold off, stack cash, not in a savings account, but I guess for the purpose of a down payment, maybe in a savings account, so it's like stable. But to buy a house right now, I think it's a very risky proposition. At some point, these supply chains are going to reopen. People are going to get back into the workforce. And then once we start to build up inventory again, you're going to see a slowdown in the housing market. And this could get into a whole conversation about loss mitigation, the defaulted mortgages, and all these people who were in their forbearance plan for the past 18 to 24 months. What actually happens when they have to start making their payments again? And given that people's wages haven't increased as much as inflation is, people are going to pay for dinner before they pay for their mortgage. So... Something to know. And speaking of people not paying their bills, coming in from ABC, thousands could face eviction by summer as renting costs skyrockets. Zillow reports that the average rental cost went from fifteen thirty in twenty nineteen to seventeen sixty four in the first three months of this year. Um, yeah, you know, uh, basically what ended up happening is during the pandemic, a lot of these real estate developers and property owners or, or had tenants that did not want to pay their bills, and they didn't, and they couldn't get evicted because of the uh, eviction moratoriums. So for uh, literal years, people who own properties, mom and pop, even smaller guys who have just like one or two multifamily homes could not collect income from their tenants. And now that these uh, eviction moratoriums are ending, they're starting to get out those own people who weren't paying their bills and getting in new tenants. And to compensate for the lack of cash flow that was happening during the moratoriums, they're increasing prices. Moreover, as we were talking about before, inflation is high and renters need to basically bite the bullet on in regards to that. Uh, it's definitely something to be paying attention for. Finding a really cheap spot to live is, well, I, I suppose in some regard, a very hyper-local phenomenon, but definitely in New York City, LA, Houston, rents are going up and it's becoming noticeable to a point where people are not going to be able to afford it. So consider that as well. Now, also going into more specifically mortgage news, which I suppose in some regard, I'm a bit of a subject matter expert given I work in the mortgage industry. Uh, U.S. mortgage interest rates rise further, loan demand ebbs. I've certainly seen that. But yeah, I guess a note on that, a personal anecdote. Ref refis have slowed down. Purchases are still relatively steady. We'll have to see how this progresses, especially after next week when the rate, rate, rate hikes actually occur. But coming in from Reuters... The average interest rate on the most popular U.S. home loan rose to its highest level since June 2009 last week, and demand for mortgages ebbed as the impact of rising costs began to bite. Mortgage Bankers Association data showed on Wednesday the average contract rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage was increased to 5.37% in the week of April in the week ended April 22nd from 5.2% a week earlier. It's risen 220 basis points or 2.2% from 12 months ago, while 
with most of the rise happening as the financial markets have reacted to the Fed's plans to raise interest rates. So basically, we're seeing a little bit of a slowdown in the housing market. And why is that occurring? Because prices are still extremely high, but the rates are going up. So the actual amount of home that you can buy, given that the interest rates have increased, is, you know, it's pricing some people out of the market. And as interest rates continue to go up, the size of a property in which people can afford is going to continue to go down. There's a negative correlation there. So going into a little bit more data from this article, still mortgage applications declined last week for the second week in a row. The NBA said its purchase composite index, a measure of all mortgage loan applications for purchases of a single home, fell 7.6% on a seasonally adjusted basis, while refinance index fell 9%. So, I mean, you know, the proof's in the pudding, folks. Uh, we are having a housing slowdown. Got to be careful about that. Now, coming in from MarketWatch, buyers of a median home price are looking at the monthly mortgage payment that is almost 50% higher than it was a year ago. And as they were saying, the 30-year mortgage rate dips slightly to 5.1. But anything above a 3% rate is you know, substantially higher than it used to be, and it's going to really price some people out of the market. So going into their data here that they have... They were talking about the 30-year rate going above 5%. This is the first time that it's done that since 2011. Uh, a, a year, the average rate on a 30-year home loan was below 3%. That is a horrible typo. Whoever was their copywriter here did a bad job. Uh, but anyway, the 15-year fixed-rate mortgage, meanwhile, rose two basis points to an average of 4.4% over the past year. The five-year Treasury index hybrid adjustable rate mortgages averaged 3.78%, rising three basis points from the previous week. Um, just if you were unaware, an adjustable rate mortgage is a very interesting financial product that became popular in the 2008 housing crash. But in short, how it works is you can lock your interest rate for a period of time say three, five, seven, or 10 years. And then at that point, the rate will be adjusting on, typically it used to be a year, but now it's on a six month basis, depending on the financial institution that you get the mortgage from. And that can be good if you're in a declining rate environment because your payment could go down. Or what I think is gonna be occurring to a lot of people who got arms in the past five, 10 years, who are about to go into their floating period, is that they're not going to be able to refinance because they may not have the cash flow or the ability to get approved for it because the rates have gone up and their rates are going to start floating. And if you're floating in a rising interest rate environment, that means your payment's going to increase. Now, I think ultimately, is this going to be the end of the housing market as we know it? Of course not, because there are so many regulations that got implemented after 2008 to mitigate this type of situation from occurring. However, is there the potential for some individuals to strategically default because they no longer want to take that payment and to foreclose someone and actually get them out of a house and depending on the state can take up to three years? Of course. So just be aware of that. Oh, and this was a crazy news. I, I don't know if you guys had paid attention on Friday, but Amazon was down 14%. And this is coming in from CNN Business. Amazon stock plunges as growth slows. Um, yeah. They got smacked really bad. Uh, the tech giant said revenue grew 7% from the same period last year to $116.4 billion, slightly beating analyst forecasts with slower growth than the 9% that they had in the final months of last year. These year-on-year comps are going to be really difficult to beat for these companies because, I mean, basically, you, you turned off and on the economy. All this demand was backed up, and then with stimulus checks, people were able to artificially spend more. And then now you have to do year-on-year comparisons where inflation's high, people are unwilling to spend, and they haven't gotten pay raises. It's going to be super tough. 
And I think Amazon is one of the many pillars that has kind of fallen down a little bit right now, given all the situations that we're dealing with here. So going into a little bit more detail, they reported a net loss of $3.8 billion for the first quarter in March 31, a sharp drop from the same period last year when it made an $8.1 billion profit. Also a big miss from the $4.4 billion profit that analysts surveyed by Redfin had forecasted. So yeah, uh, it's, it's going to be a really tough time for Amazon investors. Do I think there's the possibility for it to go back to where it was? For sure. Is that going to happen anytime soon? Probably not, unless the pun the stock market plunge protection team wants to come in and just start buying the debt. But we'll have to see what the investment banks decide to do with this. Moving into an article from CNBC, seasonal trends could be a drag on the stock market that need to rebound. Rising rates, high profile earnings missed, and burgeoning concerns about a global growth took a toll on the stock market in April. It was a really rough month this year. Uh, it was a really rough April for the market. Uh, I can actually pull up the chart here. Let's see. The S&P 500, pardon me. Yeah, the S&P 500 just this past month was down 9.3%. Let's go to the Dow Jones Industrial Average to also confirm that as well. Dow Jones was down 5.26%, which, I mean, it's not a horrible drawdown, but it's certainly not a good one. And then the NASDAQ was down 13%. By the way, uh, if a market's down more than 20%, which the NASDAQ is, that's bear market territory, people. Uh, Bear markets are not good. The trend is your friend until the end. And at least for the tech stocks, the trend seems like it is over. But... Moving into the next part, investors will be looking for a reprieve after the worst month for stocks in more than two years, but the calendar may not be more friendly here. Rising interest rates, high-profile earnings misses, and then big drawdowns come on the eve of historically weak period for stocks with the whole quote-unquote selling may and go away mindset officially beginning next week. So, you know, I, I definitely expect to see some more down uh, some a little bit more downturns in, in the near future. And while I can't get financial advice, at least for me personally, I plan on just dollar cost averaging the entire way because I have a long time horizon. The stocks that I invest in, I have a lot of conviction in and like always do some research. What I will say though is since 1917, the stock markets returned seven to 10% on an annualized adjusted basis with dividends reinvested. And, you know, you should speak to a financial advisor about what options are out there for you because there are certainly op- opportunities to buy things at a discount. Just really depends on what you're interested in. All right, moving into the bond market. The bond market has crashed. Why? One strategist says embrace the pain and get back in. These people are wild. But no, it, it is true. The 10-year treasury has seriously declined alongside the 5- and 3-year treasury. If you look at TLT, which is looking at, I believe it's 20-year maturity bonds or treasury bonds, you know, they've seen some serious selling pressure over the past few months, which is increasing rates across the board. So you got the Fed increasing rates, the bond market's crashing, yields are going up, and then, you know, it's not really a good situation. But going into the article from MarketWatch, Roberts argues that the U.S. economy is more leveraged than ever, with the average consumer needing $6,400 a year in debt to maintain their current standard of living, such as why, with the heavy requirement of cheap debt to support the standard of living, sharp rate increases will almost have will have an almost immediate impact on economic activity. Basically, if rates go up and people are putting everything on credit cards and personal loans, they're not going to be able to take out as much debt as they have been, meaning less spending, less growth, meaning higher potential for a recession. 
something to consider there. And then while bond yields can temporarily move higher, there is a point where something breaks, which will cause deflationary pressures to reassert themselves. This is exactly what I was just talking about. So if people are unable to spend at the same rate in which they were consuming before, given that rates are higher, companies are going to see less demand. And when companies see less demand to drive sales for either their goods or services, they'll lower their prices. That's deflation. Now, I'm personally really okay with that. I would rather see a slower economy and declining prices because inflation is not your friend, especially if you're not getting a raise. However, if you are in a deflationary environment, there is more risk, meaning your assets are going to decline. Your house isn't going to be worth as much. Your stocks are going to underperform. Uh, you could potentially get laid off if the economy gets impacted hard enough. So, you know, I think there's a fine balancing act there. But what is certain for sure, at least in my eyes, is that inflation is too high and something needs to be done about it. And the bond market's reflecting that. So next article is coming from the bond market as the Fed has turned hawkish. Uh, I mean, we've already talked about that yet. Bonds selling off, Fed wants to raise rates, and definitely expect higher rates for credit card, auto loan, student loan, the whole gambit. I guess a final note on that, since we are running into the FOMC meeting coming next week, if you have debt that is above market interest rates, refinance while you can, whether if it's trying to pull out some cash from your home, whether it is to consolidate uh, credit card debt into a single loan and god for sake if you do that do not blow up your credit card the second time definitely not the whole point of that strategy or even if you have an auto loan rates are going to be materially higher well, they already are from the beginning of this year but that trend is not going to slow down until the end of 2023 at a minimum so the point here is if you have the ability and capacity to refinance at the current market rates given that the rates for your debts are higher than the market rates you should certainly do so save you some money and you know something to consider so moving into our final section of the news for this week we have from cnbc warren buffett gives his most expansive explanation as to why he doesn't believe in the bitcoin or the bitcoin so he said at the berkshire hathaway annual shareholder meeting that it's not a productive asset and it doesn't produce anything tangible despite a shift in public perception about cryptocurrency buffett's not going to buy it and he says whether it's going to go up or down in the next five or ten years he doesn't know but he's pretty sure it doesn't produce anything it's got a magic to it and people have attached magic to a lot of things and i think that's a good point i mean what is the, the the whole allure of Bitcoin is that there's a limited supply, no central bank or intermediary affecting its value, um, and then it basically trades on supply and demand principles. And to his point, there there is no fundamental value for what Bitcoin is because how do you how do you tangibly commodify and p- produce a value for an asset that really in the same way as our dollar is a fictional asset? I, I think the allure of Bitcoin is it's like the greater fool's fallacy there's always going to be someone who will want to pay more for the asset until there isn't just like tulip mania so i guess to you know kind of give my perception on bitcoin i like it it's in a lot of poor people's portfolios it has really good returns and i think that trend will continue however like all bubbles which i think the stock market's in a bubble the housing market's in a bubble cryptocurrency is in a bubble they will deflate just like tulip mania that happened in the, I believe, 1700s, there will come a point where valuations get too high, people bail out of the market, and then it's going to retrace. 
just like all markets, because it goes in cycles. And on that note, thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed and maybe learned something. I definitely was uh, enjoying myself reading the news with you guys. Going to go into this next week, hoping that the Federal Reserve doesn't blow up the economy. And thank you for taking the time. Have a good day.